When Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, was arrested in Vancouver on the 1st of December, a technology battle between the U.S. and China had been brewing. The arrest was linked to her company's alleged dealing with Iran, a country the United States has strict sanctions against. The U.S. is also reportedly concerned that the Chinese government could be using Huawei's networking technology to spy on Americans. U.S. officials had spent much of the past year pleading with allies about what they perceived to be a threat from China. Many of these Western governments had been getting ready to upgrade their mobile communication systems to use 5G technology. And the fear, at least according to U.S. officials, was that working with the Chinese telecoms provider to make these upgrades would not only give China more power over this next generation of technology, but it would also expose these countries to cyber espionage. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, we're looking at how Huawei became one of the world's biggest telecoms equipment suppliers and what tensions between the U.S. and China mean for the race to own the next generation of mobile technology. Nick, who is Ren Zhengfei? Mr. Ren, as he's called internally, is a, was a non-combatant, a member of the People's Liberation Army that is probably one of the more famous businessmen in a first generation of Chinese companies that sort of grew up uh, in the 1990s, if you like, and, be, and became big global players eventually. Nick Files is the FT's telecommunications correspondent. He was somebody that came out and set up a business, and it was little more than a reseller. Uh, what Mr. Wren was doing was reselling landline equipment, and uh, what he did was he was selling it in parts of China, rural China, where the big guys, the Ericsons, the Nokias, the Siemens, the Nortels, they, they weren't really going there. China was fairly undeveloped market, high volume, but um, pretty low margin. So they were focusing on the big urban centers. He was going to the rural areas uh, and that proved enormously successful uh, and building up the business. And eventually they started developing their own equipment rather than just reselling other stuff from, uh, from suppliers in Hong Kong. So from interviews, from what you've, from your reporting, what's Mr. Ren like? I, I have met him. Uh, he's a uh, like a lot of founders, you know, quite, quite serious. Uh, he's got a cult-like status within Huawei. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about sort of, you know, his, his uh, the, the, the walls of the, the gigantic purpose-built factory they have there sort of covered in his quotes and pictures of him. Uh, and, you know, has these internal memos that, you know, that the, 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 the tens of thousands of people that work there sort of have to have to live by. And, and obviously to sort of build a company in the way that it has in this relentless way, um, you know, that, that sort of says a lot about his personality. You know, and also his rivals have you know often said that sort of coming up against him meeting him you know they they really get a sense that he compared to the traditional way of developing technology equipment perhaps in the western world you know they were very execution focused you know they're not hung up on sort of local issues or just get it to market get it to market quick get it market cheap and sell it so this is a company that said it's going to make revenues of about 100 billion dollars this year 2018 how did we get from a company reselling equipment to $100 billion in revenue. Uh, was there a contract that transformed things for Huawei? Absolutely. Uh, there was there was two, really. There was one with Hutchison in Hong Kong, which was the first time they came out of China. But really, it was a BT contract that they won in 2005 that really changed, changed the map for them. I mean, they've been planning for that contract for a long, long time, set up an office in London in 2001. And there was an unknown quantity, really. They'd won you know, a couple of things in Europe, I think it's a Telfort, a Belgian guy, but it was that BT contract where they got in at the ground level on a major 
a redesign of the British broadband telecoms network, and they were a sort of pretty critical player in that, that that really woke up the world. And um, BT executives that signed that contract have sort of made no bones about it. It was, it was the contract that really opened Huawei to Europe and then Africa, Middle East, and, and everywhere else. It was a real reference contract. If BT were going to trust them, then they were probably pretty trustworthy. And if we fast forward to today, can you give us a sense of the sheer size and, I guess, rank of Huawei in the context of the global telecoms market? Sure. If we compare them to 2005 when they won that BT contract, they were a fairly unknown quantity outside the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Within... 10 years, I think it would be fair to say they had become the biggest telecoms equipment company and supplier in the world. They are in 170 countries uh, and often the best way to think about the the scale of it is the uh, research and development power that they have. They have 80,000 engineers uh, working on you know, telling future telecoms equipment stuff you're not going to see in the real world two to three years. Um, that is, you know, pretty much more than all their rivals combined, <laughs> you know, comfortably. This year alone, they're spending $16 billion, uh, which is about 15% of their global revenue, on uh, research, uh, which, is, which is a spectacularly large number. One of the sort of leading stories in telecoms right now is this expansion to implement 5G technology. Can you just explain why it's such a big deal, why it's you know getting more attention than what I remember from the, the upgrade from 3G to 4G? Uh, 5G is different from the other Gs, basically. It's uh, it, whereas uh, previous generation upra- upgrades have kind of meant faster phones, better phones, you can do video quicker. 5G has a more fundamental impact if it's rolled out in the way that uh, the telecoms industry expects. At first, it will pretty much just seem like souped up 4G because it will initially be used as a mo- you know, an enhanced mobile broadband technology. So, you know, when you're having trouble downloading Netflix on your phone, hopefully if you're in a 5G area, that will that will, that will will uh, no longer be the case. But uh, further on, two, three years out, when 5G sort of gets to the core of the, of the mobile network, uh, you're going to get um, some very interesting things happen. Uh, some of them don't sound that interesting, things like network slicing. But uh, what it means is that the, the, the telecoms company has more of an ability to sort of carve up the network and apportion parts to perhaps companies like overtop the players to make sure that they have quality of service or even to factories uh, hospitals to ensure that again that their uh, their networks don't go down when they're using using wireless technology now that, that that's important for things like remote surgery for instance is often talked about as potential uh, futuristic technology but also driverless cars so it's it's really the technology that opens up a lot of the digital, economic, futuristic technology that we've been talking about for some time. And important in 5G as well is lag time. A lot of the, uh, again, driverless tar- cars, remote surgery, these sort of things are predicated on the idea that the time it takes for a signal to go from the phone, from the device to whatever it is, to the network and back again is, is microscopic compared to uh, on 4G where you do get that lag. Right, particularly important as we expand into the, this world of the Internet of Things. 
yeah, you've made a good point there in that uh, some people think 5G is massively overhyped, which is often the case when you upgrade mobile phone uh, networks. Uh, for that very reason, you have other types of network that can deliver Internet of Things technology perfectly well, yeah, 4G, narrowband, IoT. So this stuff does exist. You can do driverless cars without the need for 5G, but I think further out, sort of 10 years from now, 5G will be the critical network for delivering all this stuff. And that's probably why it's suddenly become an issue. Governments in around the world were probably not too concerned about someone like Huawei having the ability to intervene in 4G networks. They were, but um, you know, with 5G, the the the, the impact of you know catastrophic attacks, um, you know, that, that 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 has become more front of mind. I think for the security forces. Nick, I think that brings me to my next question. Then, which you know, China was one of the early movers in developing infrastructure for five G technology. Can you just explain why was that so important for them? So China decided 5G uh, would be the moment that they started to try and dominate the wireless telecoms industry. The 2G uh, industry was dominated by Europe, uh, 3G to some extent as well. They set the standards. They, they were first to market. The US sort of caught up with 4G. Uh, China, back as far back as 2013, was planning to dominate the 5G era and capture the competitive advantage of being the first to launch those markets. So if I'm the US government, the UK government, New Zealand, Australia, why am I suspicious of Huawei? It's a two-sided answer, I think. The first one is partly what we were talking about there, network resilience, uh, the economic impact of risk in the network uh, if you've got automated factories uh, running on running on sort of unsecure equipment. That will be a concern for any, for any government. Uh, but the other side of the coin is this uh, suspicion about China uh, and ergo Huawei, who's providing a lot of the equipment there and developing a lot of it, taking a lead in 5G. And... Uh, especially from the American perspective. That, that, that's, that's another debate here, whether, whether the Americans who no longer have a, a, a telecoms equipment supplier based in the country but rely on the Scandinavians, Nokia and Ericsson, uh, whether they're concerned that China is way ahead in, in 5G and will get the economic and technological benefits of that, and hence the US, the UK, other economies lose that, uh, lose that competitive advantage. There are also, of course, concerns we have to mention about a new mandate introduced by the Chinese government that orders companies to comply with Chinese security demands. Nick, what what kind of pressure has the U.S. been putting on some of these other countries, particularly in Europe, to stay clear of, of working with Huawei? I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, from what we hear, it's, um, you know, delegations uh, sort of coming over and you know, trying to convince the security services in countries like the UK and Germany that uh, this equipment is not safe. You know, that the the systems in place that we do have aren't picking up everything, uh, and that we should be worried, and we sh- and that, that perhaps they should be barred from five G for for these for these reasons. Uh, as you know, the UK, the US, Australia, and New Zealand are all part of uh, the Five Eyes Agreement, and um, some of that pressure is paying off. Australia and New Zealand have now taken those those steps, and what we're also seeing is more network operators responding to that pressure as well. So SoftBank in Japan, Orange in France, uh, now saying they won't work with Huawei because of that increased risk that you. Know, in a year's time or six months' time, their their local governments will make a similar move. 
Uh, one thing is probably important to say is that the the, the operators, at least here, argue uh, that um, Huawei is always kept at the periphery of the network. It's kept out of what's called the core, which is where you could do damage. You could turn things off, you know, get the information on customers, track information, track movements. They argue quite vociferously that you know keeping the Chinese suppliers. Ergo, Huawei out of that, you know, means that everything's safe and we we shouldn't really be worried. And that has that's been a persuasive argument till now, so it may be again. But um, it's pretty uncertain at the moment. And this is, as I said, existential for Huawei. You know, Europe is their largest market outside mainline China. You know, this this must be of great concern to them. Has Huawei's relationship with the U.S. always been strained? Uh, Huawei uh, has had issues in America for uh, for going back actually quite a long time. It feels like a new issue. It feels like a 5G issue. But the Americans have, have been pretty resistant and recommending that their largest networks, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, T-Mobiles, they don't use Huawei's equipment. There is some in, in some of the regional cable networks, for example, but a, a nationwide critical network infrastructure, Huawei's been frozen out of that market for, for quite some time. What's changed, I think, going into 5G is that the Americans have been putting pressure on other countries, security allies, to take a similar approach. Now, Huawei's response uh, is, is, is interesting. Uh, I think they feel like they have worked very hard in countries like the UK to prove that, they, that their customers have nothing to worry about, that governments have nothing to worry about. There's never been any backdoors found in their equipment. In the UK here, they set up a, uh, a cyber cell that's uh, run by the UK security forces that sort of monitors all their equipment to check for that sort of thing. So they've always felt that they've tried to stay ahead of the game and sort of prove that there's nothing wrong with the equipment, and that's worked. That's evidenced by the fact that every British network and most European countries have Huawei equipment throughout the networks you know that this this system seems to have seems to have uh, assuaged a lot of those fears but what's happened with the security services general sort of view that maybe we should be paying more attention to what's in this critical natural infrastructure uh, has uh, has really come out of, out of nowhere for them i think i think they felt it was an issue but now it really is a big big issue uh, you know we, we met with them uh, just this week and they were saying things like we will do absolutely anything now to appease some of these concerns because it, it feels quite it feels quite fundamental for them. An arrest that is sending ripples to the global stock market this morning. Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou was detained in Canada at U.S. request, allegedly for transferring American technology to Iran in violation of U.S. sanctions. She was taken at the request of American authorities. She faces extradition to the United States. She is also the daughter of Huawei's founder. So on December the 1st, uh, she was uh, changing planes in Vancouver and, and, and was arrested by Canadian authorities. Uh, Meng Wenzhou is more than the chief financial officer. She's the daughter of the founder. So this was a deeply personal move for the Americans to have made. It was, it was a huge shock, I think, for Huawei, and it really, it really sort of highlighted what they, their worst fears, if you like. And um, we're sort of waiting now, I guess, to see what the next step is. Uh, the timing of this as well being, you know, right in the middle of trade talks between, uh, between Donald Trump uh, and the, the Chinese as well sort of got added an extra frisson of, uh, for the narrative too.
So if we step back from this arrest for just a second, are we looking at a situation where one country, say China, might actually own the better part of the way 5G works? Does that seem feasible at this point? Yeah, I don't think any country will have ownership of 5G. I think it's about influence. I mean, the, the main 5G network companies aren't American. As they're, 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 they're Chinese, they're Swedish, they're Finnish. But you have companies like Qualcomm and Intel have got a big piece of this market and you know have big ambitions to, to dominate as well. So if, if the conspiracy theory that this is all about slowing Huawei down to, to, to let the other guys catch up is true that would i guess be a rebalancing or rebalancing of the market right at the time that 5g is being deployed basically stopping the chinese company the dominant chinese company from getting a virtual monopoly uh, in the early days of 5g and then sort of entrenching themselves A lot will depend on uh, on the, the American political situation and what happens with the trade negotiations. Donald Trump's sort of made it clear that he will potentially intervene in this arrest situation, which uh, politically, you know, is is, is quite controversial, uh, given it's not really his jurisdiction. But it tells you that um, it tells you that Huawei sort of, as much as anybody, are caught in the middle of all this. What they can do about it, I guess, it's just business as usual. As I said before, if we get to a situation where they have a denial order and they're not able to deal with American companies, that's, that's, that's a serious, serious situation for them. And it's not so much a matter of slowing them down. It could, it could completely hamper them. Uh, 33 of their 92 core supply companies are in the US. So effectively, they, that, that, that grinds to a halt immediately. So what's interesting about Huawei is that it's employee-owned. That's Yes, that's their brag. That's why they say we shouldn't be worried about them being linked to the Chinese military, despite Mr. Ren's uh, background uh, in his history. And their obvious, you know, links in the past with the Chinese government. You know, there's there's, there's talks about sort of quasi-subsidies when they've won, won deals in Chinese cities and, and this sort of thing. But they've always said, no, we're 100% owned by our employees. Um, so, you know, so we're like any other company, basically. Nick, one of our first episodes of this podcast was on Broadcom's failed bid for Qualcomm. Uh, it was the deal that fell apart over U.S. national security concerns. Are we going to see more and more tie-ups quashed, I guess, because of this perceived threat? You know, that that particular deal was um, was obviously quite um, noteworthy, as you said. It also set the ground rule for, for, I think, what we're seeing now is this sort of this attempt to sort of localize or gain national competitive advantage or protect, you know, almost like a protectionist industry in the tele, in the technology and telecom sector. And it's a difficult one uh, for, for some of the reasons I talked about before with Huawei, while you know, a third of their core supply comes from the U.S., so a denial order would, would, would basically stop everything in their tracks. Some, something like forty percent of Qualcomm's core supplies are in Asia. So if there's retaliatory action, you know that 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 doesn't necessarily play out particularly well for the American companies as well. So you know these are very global industries. These are all these companies are reliant on you know suppliers and research and staff bases all over the world so it's a very difficult thing to unpick and build a wall around nick thank you so much for your time that's okay
The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.